Let me invite you to pull your message notes out now. We are finishing the series that we've been in, Love Story, a verse-by-verse look through the book Song of Songs in the Bible. The foundation for the series has been chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says, Solomon's Song of Songs. Solomon was King David's son. He was the third king of Israel. According to 1 Kings, Solomon wrote 1,005 different songs. This was the greatest out of all of them. This was the song of songs. In this song, it's written kind of like a play. There's three different characters who speak throughout the book. There's Solomon, there's the beloved, the girl that he loves, that he marries in the story. And then there's this chorus of friends that chime in throughout. And actually today, we're going to discover who this chorus of friends is. Chapter 8 reveals it to us. She's speaking here. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is more delightful than wine. Now, that's been the goal of this series, to teach you to live your life in such a way, to handle relationships in such a way, to to love people around you, to treat people in such a way that everyone in your world says you are a delight to be around. The people that you work with, your neighbors, your family, friends, they say you are just delightful to be around. She goes on to say, pleasing is the fragrance of your perfumes. Your name or reputation is like perfume poured out. So her conclusion is no wonder the young women love you. Anybody would want to be married to a guy like you. Anyone would want to be married to a girl like you. Any kid would want to have a parent like you. No wonder they all love you. Now, the challenge of this series is, We want to learn how to handle this area of our life, these relationships, particularly the marriage relationship, according to God's way, God's way. And we want to challenge the world's way of doing things, because I think all of us would agree when we look at the world that we live in today, something's something's not working. It's not, there's just this trail of devastation and frustration and hurt and epidemic of divorce in our nation. Something's not right. And we need to learn that there's another way to go about these areas and it works. So Solomon, inspired by God, wrote this for us so that we would understand God's standard on marriage and sexuality. Now, many people avoid this book because it's difficult. Uh, There are a lot of metaphor, symbolism, allegory, and honestly, people just don't know what this stuff means anymore. So to start today, what I wanted to do is I wanted to share what this book would look like if it was written today in North County. This is the North County version of the Bible for you. Let's go back to chapter four. Here's the North County version. How beautiful you are, my darling. Your eyes behind your veil are illuminated like a 60-inch Ultra HD television. You get that a little bit more, don't you? That, that, That makes a little more sense. Your hair is like a flock of cyclists flowing down the hills of Torrey Pines, each decked out in spandex. Your teeth are like Titleist Pro V1 straight out of a new sleeve. Each has a twin. None of them stand alone. Like that makes more sense to us, doesn't it? Your lips are like the scarlet fenders of a Ford Mustang. Your mouth is lovely. Your temples behind your veil are like a pomegranate smoothie fresh from Jamba Juice. Your neck is like the outfield billboard at Petco Park. On it hang the banners of a thousand sponsors, all of them warriors. Your breasts are like two glazed donuts from VG's. 
perfectly frosted and available every weekend before services begin. Until the day breaks and the shadows flee, I will go to the mountain of Chanel perfume and to the hills of Febreze. Now that makes a little more sense to us, doesn't it? The Bible says laughter is like a good medicine. I thought you're going to need something because be very honest, today will be a little bit more challenging. It is the most challenging message of the six weeks as we really learn how how to do this God's way. So let's, let's review where we've been. Week number one, we started with the art of attraction. What do we look for in the opposite sex? What do, we, what do we need to work on in ourselves when we're pursuing somebody of the opposite sex? And after we're married, what do we need to do to maintain our attractiveness? And we found out it has nothing to do with the physical. There are other things much more important. Week number two, we looked at God's version of courting versus the world's way of dating. I think we've adopted a system that has created a lot of hurt and a lot of pain. I'm a product of the system we've adopted. I have the scars in my life and my family to show the the problem of divorce in this nation. It just doesn't work. Week number three, This is amazing to me that God includes an entire chapter in the Bible, like a whole chapter of nothing but this couple's sex life to show us what a hot, passionate sex life looks like according to God's standard. Chapter four, week number five, excuse me, week number four, we dealt with their first fight as a couple. They're moving out of the honeymoon season. They get in a fight. And we talk about how when we make pre-fight decisions, when we learn how to handle conflict the right way, it actually deepens our relationship. Last week, we watched this couple's love deepen and mature and begin to grow. And I I encourage you, if you've missed any one of the, the previous weeks, go to our YouTube channel, watch it online on our website, listen to the podcasts on iTunes, catch up. This is very foundational stuff. Today, this couple is going to leave us with a very important word for any relationship in our life, and it's the word commitment. Commitment. And unfortunately, we don't like that word today, do we? That's, That's not a popular term in the world that we live in because we have built every out possible in jobs, in contracts, in marriages, In just about every relationship, we want to know, how do I protect myself and how do I get out of it if I need to get out of it? And look, that may be needed in some transactions, but it is completely inappropriate in marriage. If you do not understand commitment, you don't understand human love. And this is for any relationship, but particularly it is for Marriage, and here's the truth about commitment. You only need it when things aren't working out. Like when you want to do it, you don't need to be committed to it because you want to be there. Commitment comes into play when the circumstances aren't pleasant. Commitment comes into play when things aren't going the way you want them to go. And now in the world today, we have what we call no-fault divorces, which are relatively new since 1970. And look, I'm not naive. I know that there are people here tonight that have made mistakes in their past. There are people here tonight that have been divorced. There's some of you that have divorced people. Some of you have been divorced. You were on the receiving end. It wasn't your choice. And you now carry the wounds of somebody else's choice. So I'm not naive to know that that this is going to be a tough message. But again, I want you to remember 
the rules. There is grace for your past. We're not here to condemn your past and beat you up over your past. We're here to focus on the future. You may have been divorced eight times and married eight times. I'm here tonight to help you not make it number nine. That's the goal. We want to forget what is behind us, and we want to press forward to what is ahead. And what commitment means is I'm going to be willing to be unhappy for a little while till we work this thing out. In a wedding, we say it like this, till death do us part, part of the wedding vows. And here's something many people don't realize about the wedding vows. This vow is not a vow between the husband and between the wife. This is a vow between the husband and between God and between the wife and between God. It's a vow that you make with God and God doesn't break his end of the deal. Which means we don't have permission to break our end of the deal. If you watch the wedding ceremony, I performed a wedding Friday night for our youth pastor and my sister-in-law who got married. When, they, when, they, when, when I say, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife for good times, bad times, sickness, health, richer and poor? They said, I do to me, not to each other. And I'm standing in the place of God in that ceremony. So that was a vow between them and God. It's the final phrase, the final vow that we say. Everybody wants it in the ceremony. But nobody actually wants to live by it. In the ancient Jewish weddings, their custom at this moment in the ceremony is they would take an animal and they would sacrifice an animal. They would cut the animal up into bloody pieces, spread them out on the ground. The bride and groom would walk through the center of the bloody pieces on the ground. And they would say, let it be to us if we ever break the vow that we are making with God today. And I get it. I know some of you are thinking to yourself right now, man, this is 2017. It doesn't work like that. You're, you're going overboard. People don't think like that. It doesn't. I challenge this modern day reality that we live in. It, it doesn't work. We also say in the ceremony, what God has joined together, don't let man figure out a way to get out of it. And look, I can almost hear it now. I can almost hear your thoughts thinking, you're asking for way too much out of me, Pastor. Like what you're talking, that's, that's not realistic. That's impossible what you're talking about. Now, I'm going to give you the secret tonight. I'm going to give you the secret. And not only am I going to give you the secret, I'm going to show you the power that actually makes this possible in your life where you can be a person of commitment. So let's jump into the text. Chapter 8, we're going to begin in verse 5. Who is this? You ever, ever have your, your, your wife or your daughter kind of walk into the room and they're all done up? They're going out somewhere, maybe to a formal or dance, or you're going on a date and they walk in and, and you look at them and say, who are you? That's basically what's going on right there. They're, they're, they're just saying, who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her, her beloved? They're saying, we don't recognize you anymore. Love has so transformed you, you look different. And that's my hope for us. My hope for you is that you experience the love of God in such a way that when you get around people, people are like, who are you? Like, you're different. Like, I know it's you, but there's something different. You treat people different. You, they're, they're, 
you're, you have been transformed. We don't even recognize you anymore. We've never seen anything like that. She goes on to say, under the apple tree, now they weren't literally under an apple tree. The apple tree was the symbol for passion. So she's talking about the place of passion. In the place of passion, I roused you or I aroused you. And then she says something that's a little bit strange, talking about their intimate moment. She says, there your mother conceived you. There she who was in labor gave you birth. Now, they weren't saying that mom was there watching. That that wasn't what's going on. What she was saying is she was pointing out the intentional plan of God, that God created you for me. You were born for me, and I was born for you. She goes on to say, place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Now, in this time period, a family would have a crest or a ring. And when you did a business deal or transaction, you would take hot wax and you would take the family ring and you would press it into the wax, forming a seal, meaning the transaction is final. What she's saying here is, I want to be a final transaction in your life. Uh, This is all about ownership. I belong to you. You belong to me. This is final. And so what I want to show you tonight is I want to show you four things that makes love final. Four things for love to become permanent and lasting. The next phrase, this is where we get the wedding vow, till death do us part. She says, for love is as strong as death. Meaning the only thing that can stop me from loving you is death. Because death isn't a feeling or an emotion. Death is my commitment to action. And the only thing that is going to break my commitment is death. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. This is the Hebrew word sheel, which literally is translated hell. Love is unyielding as hell. Hell never lets go. You go to hell, you don't get out of hell. Hell is forever and hell does not let go. She's saying love does not let go. Only death can separate us, she says, and may I go to hell if I ever break this promise. Every couple I married, about two weeks before the marriage, we have the little till death do us part talk. And I help them understand this phrase. What this phrase means in the wedding ceremony is let me burn in hell if I ever break the covenant I'm making with God. Because the thing is, you're not making a covenant to another human being. The human being can break the covenant. God won't. You're making a vow to God. And when you say those words out loud, you're declaring, let me burn in hell if I ever break this vow. So more appropriately in the wedding ceremony, when I get to the place where I say, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife in good times, bad times, rich or poor, sickness and hell, till death do us part? The more appropriate response in that moment is not I do. The more appropriate response is like hell. That's really what they should be saying in this area. Like, hell, I do. That's Because that's what they're saying. Because love is as unyielding as hell. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. So this shows us point number one. Lasting love is possessive. It's 
possessive. I belong to you. You belong to me. This is the difference between a covenant marriage and a consumer marriage. Unfortunately, we live in a world of consumerism. And consumerism teaches us that if I get a better supplier, a better product, a better price, then I cut my losses and I move on. And that's what most of the marriages we see in America look like. Consumerism. And we've got to go back to covenant. My pastor was counseling a couple a few years ago and the wife in the relationship had sinned against her husband. It was one time. And I'm not justifying it. I'm not contoning it. But she failed one time. And he was done. He didn't want anything to do with her. His, his heart was shut. My pastor pleaded with him to forgive and to reconcile and to give her a chance. But, but his heart was cold. He was done. He wanted out. The end of the conversation, the guy asked my pastor. He said, by the way, do, does the church have anything for drug addicts? He said, what do you mean? He goes, my brother's a drug addict. He's been struggling with this his whole life. He's taken money from us and taken advantage of us and lied to us. And we've sent him to rehab and we've paid for it. And he's relapsed and he's stolen money to go buy drugs. And it's just a cycle in his life that's gone on for years. And we're just, we're, we're trying to help him. And my pastor looks at the guy and says, wait, wait, wait help, help me understand something. You mean to tell me that your brother has betrayed you over and over and over, broken your trust over and over and over, sinned against you, stolen money from you, taken advantage of you time and time again. She made a mistake one time. You're going to get rid of her and you're going to give your brother another. What's the deal? And the guy looks at my pastor and he said, well, pastor, he's blood. He's blood. The only difference is your definition. Because what covenant says is you are blood to me. Look, I've got a blood relationship with my son, Asher. If my son grows up and he falls into sin and gets involved in drugs and finds himself in an ugly situation, I will chase him down to the ends of the earth to bring him home. I will do whatever it takes to bring him back. And every parent in here would do the same thing. But isn't it interesting how we've redefined the marriage relationship differently? And I'm saying it's the same. Marriage needs to be brought back to a blood level relationship. Covenant, I cannot divorce you. I can kill you, but I can't divorce you. And look, look again, I can, I can feel the pushback from up here. Trust me, God's way works. And again, for those of you that have been through it, remember the rules. Start fresh today. Let's look at the next point, verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers Cannot wash it away. This is where we get the other wedding vows. Sickness, health, good times, bad times, rich or poor. What she's saying there is no circumstance can take our love away. Bring on tragedy, bring on flood, bring on disaster. No matter what it is, it will not wash away our love. 
Our love is stronger than the circumstances of this life. Goes on to say, if one were to give all the wealth of his house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Utterly scorned. What that means is if you tried to pay me for my wife, you're probably going to get hit. That's what that means. You're going to be scorned. Like if you came to me and said, I'll give you $100 for Amanda, I will slap you in the face, no questions asked. If you came back to me and said, I will give you $10 million for Amanda, I would say, give me to the end of the day to think of it. No, 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 no. (laughs) No, I would actually be even more offended because you're trying to tell me that my love has a quantitative value. There's a price tag on how I feel for my wife. I'm telling you, there's no lure out there. There's not another woman. There's not another job. There's not a career. There's not enough money to lure me away. What this shows us, number two, lasting love is persevering. It perseveres any circumstance, any situation. Perseveres over any temptation. And married people, I need you to help me out tonight. There, there's some single people in the crowd tonight. Single people live in a fantasy land. They, they just do. They, they think that if I marry the right person, it's going to be like breakfast in bed every day and, you know, candlelight dinners. And it's, it's going to be like a movie every day. Married people, help me out. It's not a movie, is it? It was funny. Last night I said that, and a guy in the church came up to me. He said, well, well Pastor, it kind of is a movie. It just changes genres every day. Like some days it's just a horror movie. <laughs> just... See, the truth is Amanda and I decided to stick it out. I promise you. I promise there's not a person in here tonight that has any worse circumstances than what my wife and I have had to go through to make our marriage work. I don't care where it's at. I don't, I don't, you may be hanging on by, You may have already moved out. I don't care. God can put it back together. We just have to learn how to redefine it from convenient to covenant. See, a covenant relationship surrenders rights, does not demand its own way. First Corinthians, love does not demand its own way, and it assumes responsibilities. A convenient relationship protects rights, demands its own way, and shirk responsibility. I promise you. The grass is not greener on the other side. You're going to get tired of hearing that, but I'm going to keep saying it. It's not. And if it is, the water bill's higher. The grass is green where you invest in your lawn. You put the work into it, you'll have a beautiful lawn, but it takes work. Let's look at the next point, verse 8. We, this, this is where we discover who the chorus of friends are. Right here in this phrase, we have a little sister. The chorus of friends was her brothers. Remember chapter one, she was all angry at her brothers because they made her go work in the fields and her skin got dark and ugly and she wasn't the attractive girl and she was mad at them because she felt like they were being unfair and harsh and mean to her. Turns out they knew what they were doing. We have a little sister and her breasts are not yet grown, meaning she's still young, 11, 12, 13. Men, if you have a daughter... This is the most important thing, most important verse you're going to learn in the Bible if you have a daughter. Most important question, what shall we do for our sister or daughter on the day she is spoken for? It's a great verse. 
In other words, what makes her ready? When, when some guy comes rolling up to ask for her hand in marriage, how do you know if she's ready or not? What is the condition? I mean, is it a degree? Is it a certain age? What do you think it is? Like for a moment, think about that. What, before I give you, what do you think the answer is going to be? Look what her brothers say. If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she's a wall. If she's walled herself off, if she's protected her purity, if she's guarded, if she hasn't just let any guy that comes along in, but she's guarded her purity, she's protected herself, she's walled herself off, she's not cheap or easy, she doesn't give herself away before marriage, she's, she's walled off. They say, we will build towers of silver, we're going to lavish her with gifts, we're going to bless her. We know if she's protected herself, then she's ready. But if she is a door, she's a door. Come on in. Who's next? Have your way with me. Here's my heart. Here's my body. Who's next? Take a number. If she's a door, we will enclose her with panels of cedar. She's not ready. She's not ready. But before I do any wedding, I'm going to get to know the couple a little bit, and I'm going to ask some questions. Honestly, I'm going to get all up in their business. Because they're asking a lot out of me. They're asking me to stand before God and give them my blessing over their marriage. My blessing is not cheap, and it is not easy, and I'm going to find out some things about them. Anytime I perform a wedding ceremony, I look at it as if I'm co-signing on somebody's loan. And I got to believe they're going to make payments or I'm not doing it. You can go to a judge if you want to, but if you want my blessing, I'm going to find out some stuff. We're going to have the little purity conversation. There's a couple in our church that I married a couple weeks ago. They're actually here tonight. They came to our church a couple years ago, began living passionately for God. I met him after service. I said, how long have you guys been married? They said, we're not married. We've been living together for 30 years. I said, well, so that's going to change. You're going to get married. Like, you want to be Christians? This is, this, this is what it looks like. And I challenged him to stay pure until they got married. It took about a year and a half to get everything in place for them to be able to get married. And they committed to staying pure for a year and a half after living together for 30 years. They stayed pure. And they walked down the aisle pure before God. And they, they're the happiest newlyweds I've ever been around. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're, they're beaming with joy because of the decisions they made to honor God and do it right. I'm telling you, if you can't stay faithful before the commitment, you're, you're not going to stay faithful after. Trust me. So I'm going to find out. I'm going to find out if they're a wall or they're a door. And if they're a door, I'm not marrying them. They're going to have to wait. They're going to, have to, they're going to have to go through a process of allowing God to restore their purity before they're going to get my blessing because i got to know they're going to make payments on this loan because I'm co-signing on it. But you may call me old-fashioned. You may say that I'm out of touch, but we are raising the bar of morality in our church because number three, lasting love is protective. It's protective. She, she walled herself off. She protected herself. I am fighting so hard for you right now. 
I'm fighting for your kids. I'm fighting for your children. I so desperately want you to buy into God's way of doing things. Because here's the thing. God's commands are not to penalize you or punish you. They're to protect you and to bless you. I've got a protective relationship with my wife. I tell her what my struggles are. I tell her about my weaknesses. I tell her when I'm tempted. You say, you tell your wife that stuff? Of course I do. I want her to help protect me. She's got more skin in the game than anybody. I need that level of accountability and transparency to to guard me and to protect me because love is protective. So we've set some rules in our marriage. We've got filters on our internet. I don't stay in hotel rooms by myself. We've got rules for our staff because I'm fighting to protect them. They don't do closed door meetings with people of the opposite sex. They don't ride in cars alone with people of the opposite sex. We're fighting for their integrity and they're they're raising the bar of morality in their life. Lasting love protects, protects. And she actually... As much as she fussed at her brothers in chapter one, she appreciated it later. Because look at her response. Look at what she says. I'm a wall, she responds. And my breasts are like towers. Now, she's not bragging or boasting there. Let me just say that. She's just saying, you can't touch this. You can't touch this. This is reserved. This is reserved for one relationship at the right time. Thus, and here's my dream for you. Thus, I have become in his eyes, in Solomon's eyes, like one bringing contentment. That's the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. She's saying, look, because I had standards, because I protected my purity, because I fought for my morality, because I didn't let just anybody have this. I now have the relationship that everybody wants. I'm now a desire and an envy of other couples because they look at our relationship and they want what we have because there's peace in the middle of our relationship. This couple's not worried about diseases. They're not worried about heartache. They're not worried about being left one day. And look, I, I, I get it. I know some of you are thinking, well, it's too late for me. I've already been wounded. I've already made mistakes. I've already failed. Again, remember the rules. Let's make a decision today. And let's fight for your future. Because here's the result. Number four, lasting love is peaceful. It's peaceful. And this is what I'm trying to lure you into. The whole reason we did this series is to help you get here. I want you to experience this. This is possible. Look at verse 11. And here's the big reveal of the story. This is like the aha, the light bulb. You know, at the end of the movie, when you find out who did it, this is, this is that moment. Solomon had a vineyard. Remember the vineyard she had to work in, in chapter one? The vineyard, her brothers forced her and she complained and she griped and she fussed and she was mad and she thought they were being hard on her. It was Solomon's vineyard. And he let it out to tenants. The tenants were her brothers. If she had rebelled against her brothers, she would have missed her opportunity to marry the king. The whole reason Solomon noticed her is because her brothers forced her to work in the vineyards. 
Each was to bring for its fruit a thousand shekels of silver, but my own vineyard is now mine to give, meaning it's, it's now mine. I'm married to him. It's mine. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon. Now look at this. This is so beautiful in the story. And 200 are for those, that's her brothers, who tend its fruit. What she's doing right there is she's thanking her brothers. She said, you guys were hard on me. You guys were strict. You, you, you gave me boundaries. I didn't like it. I thought you were being unfair. I didn't like having that curfew. I didn't like getting to do what all my other friends got to do. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't like any of it at the time. But she's saying, I want to thank you now because you protected me, you guarded me, you gave me boundaries. And I look at my life today, I look at what I've become because you were tough on me. Teenagers, single people, trust me for a moment. You need to find somebody in your life you trust, somebody that you give permission to over your relationships. Where they can tell you no. You're with the wrong person and you'll obey them and you'll walk away. Parents, we need boundaries for our kids. I know they don't like it. I know they're going to fight. I, I know they're going to be like, you're being too strict, mom. You're being too strict, dad. Why, why, why are you being tough? All my other friends get... We need boundaries. We protect what's valuable to us, don't we? It's unfortunate that there's guys in our community that would make it more difficult for a teenage boy to take out their Mercedes than a teenage boy to take out their daughter. We protect what is valuable to us. I married another young man. We've had a lot of weddings the last few weeks. I married another young man, 27 years old in our church. Young executive in his company. Hardworking. Good kid. Stood on this stage a few weeks ago as a 27-year-old virgin, being able to give all of himself to his wife. And when I listened to their story, it was mom and dad had boundaries. Mom and dad were tough. We didn't always like it. But they set some rules. They had guardrails in our life. They taught us the right way. Wasn't always fun. Wasn't always easy. But they had boundaries in our life. You better believe his wife is thanking his parents right now. That she got to marry a virgin. She doesn't have to worry about who he's been with. Her being compared to somebody else. And I know that's not pleasant to say because there's a lot of us in here that have made mistakes in those areas of our life. I promise you, nobody more than me. And God can restore, but there's some scars and it's not easy. Let's fight for our purity. Let's fight for it. He goes on to say, you who dwell in the gardens with friends in attendance, he's, basically that means he's at work right now. And, and here's the nugget for the men of the audience tonight. Let me hear your voice, he says. So he's at work, but he's thinking about her. So what that means, men, is tomorrow when you're at work, just go ahead and get your phone out, text your wife, say, I'm thinking about you. I'm thinking about you. I'm at work, but I'm thinking about you. And she liked it. 
Because here's a response. Here's, here's the last verse in the whole book. And remember, they're older now, silver hair. This is like the end of their life. Look at her response. Come away, my beloved, and be like a gazelle. Be like a young stag, a stug. Like, hurry home. I'm getting all hot and bothered, and I want to see you, she's saying. She says, on the spice-laden mountains. Do you remember the mountains from chapter 4? The same mountains right there. <laughs> That's the last verse of the book. I love it. She's like, hurry home. They're all hot and bothered. They're, they're, they're just passionate as ever after years of being married. Beautiful, isn't it? Let me give you the two takeaways that, that I feel come out of this book. First off is great relationships are no accident. You want a great marriage, you're going to have to invest in it. You're going to have to work at it. It's not going to happen automatically. And unfortunately, culture has trained us to follow our feelings. Like however you feel. But I'm telling you, choices lead, feelings follow. You don't follow your feelings. Oh, I just love her. I, I fell in love. Love's not a ditch. You don't fall into love. The truth is love is a choice. Love is a choice. And the greatest expression of love is when I don't feel like it. When I don't feel like it. The greatest expression of love for my son was a couple months ago at 3 o'clock in the morning when we woke up and he's thrown up all over himself. At 3 in the morning when I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I got to get up early for a meeting. I'm up middle of the night taking his clothes off, putting them in the bathtub, taking the sheets and the pillowcases and the blankets and putting them in the washing machine that's the greatest expression of love when you don't want to do it. Because love isn't a feeling. That's why Paul says, and over all of these virtues, put on love. It's right there waiting, but you've got to put it on. You've got to make a choice to put this on. It, it's not going to automatically be there. You put it on. And the second takeaway is I don't want to be naive. I don't want to make all of this sound a lot easier than it really is. I know some of you are in situations where it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. But the truth is, you absolutely can have everything I've described. All of this absolutely is possible for you. But you're going to have to take this last and final step. In order to truly love people, you have to first experience love. You, you can't love until you've experienced love. Until love has been deposited inside of you, you've got nothing to give people around you. And this is exactly why God, to show you his love, allowed his son to be slaughtered in your place to take the punishment you deserve. It's why Jesus, to show you his love, allowed himself to be tortured in the most unimaginable ways so that you would have a chance to be friends with his dad. He desperately wanted you to know his dad. So the second takeaway is being love gives capacity to love. Until you first allow God to love you, you're not going to have the ability to truly love the people around you.
the way they need to be loved. You may love them the way you want to love them, but you won't love them the way they need to be loved without God. It takes God to pull all of this off. That's why 1 John says we love. We love. We have the capacity to love. We have the ability to love. We have the power. Here's the secret. This is the secret that makes it all possible. You want the power to be able to pull this off? We love. Why? Because he first loved us. So here's my prayer for you as we close this series. Paul says in Ephesians 3, I pray. I pray. And I'm praying this for you. I'm praying this over you. I pray that Christ will be more and more at home in your heart. Living within you as you trust him. May your roots go deep into the soil of God's marvelous love. And may you be able to feel and understand how long, how wide, how deep, and how high his love really is. And experience this love for yourselves. And everything we do here is to bring you to this. Everything we do is so that you can encounter God's love this way. And so as we leave tonight, the question is, do you need to experience God's love today? Do you need to receive his love today? How? Through what he did on the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ was the greatest act of love. The greatest act of love. That we who were guilty, we were guilty of our sin. Jesus was innocent. He had never sinned. And yet he went to the cross and he was punished in our place. Punished so that we had a chance to receive God's grace, not based on our own effort, not based on our own merit, not based on us being good enough, but based on what he did on our behalf. And you've got to make a decision to receive that gift. He's not going to force it on you. He's not going to make you take it. You've got to make a choice to put your faith and your trust in him. In other words, to surrender your life to him is what it means. Surrender your life to Jesus to receive his gift of love. And there's some of you, and you know exactly who you are from the moment this service began. You felt, and the best way I can describe it is there's strings attached to your heart and somebody's been tugging at them the whole service. You felt that inside. You need to know that's, that's God. That's God. He, the Bible describes that as knocking at the door of your heart. God wants to come inside. He wants you to open the door and allow him to be a part of your life. And before we leave, I'd love to give you an opportunity to do that and to pray with me. A prayer of surrender. Would you close your eyes with me and bow your heads? If what I described is you and you're at that place where it's time to give your life to Jesus, it's time to surrender control. And then there, there are also some of you here tonight where it's time for you to renew your commitment because it's been a long time since you lived a surrendered life. And you understand what that means. Years ago, you were surrendered for God and living for God, but 
through a variety of life circumstances, that just doesn't describe where you're at anymore. And it's time for you to renew your commitment to him tonight. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray with, with both groups. And I'm not going to ask you to stand up. You don't have to go anywhere. You don't even have to pray this out loud tonight. But if you're here and you would say, I need to surrender my life to Jesus tonight. I need to receive the gift of his love. I need to pray with you. But I'd like you to just so I know who's praying with me. With every eye closed, nobody looking around, would you very quickly raise your hand and put it down so that I know who's praying with me. Just raise your hand and put it right back down. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Appreciate those hands. The prayer is very simple. In your heart, I want you to pray this. Say, Jesus, tonight I give you my life. I surrender. I give you control. Forgive me of the sin that separated me from you. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for the grace to cover my past. Thank you for giving me a brand new future. Thank you for giving me your love with which I'll have the power to love others. In Jesus' name.